back into the series we started a couple weeks ago called Journey to the Cross. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and jump to uh, Mark chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 12 today. Mark chapter 11, uh, the New Testament, Matthew's the first book, Mark's the second book. Mark chapter 11, we're going to start reading in verse 12. And we began this series called A Journey to the Cross. And when we started this series... I ask you to think about a journey that you've been on. Some of you are mountain climbers, and some of you are hikers and campers, and thought of literal journeys that you've been on. Some of you thought of metaphorical journeys, like the journey of life, or your spiritual journey, or marriage, or college, or whatever it is that maybe popped into your mind when I asked you to think about a journey. And I shared with you a road trip that my family had recently been on. Now, those of you who don't know, my wife and I have four kids, and so you can start to imagine what a road trip would be like with four kids. And I talked about some of those details, and what it was like to go on the road trip, and it was about a three and a half hour trip. And even if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, I bet you know the question that got asked about 10 minutes into that road trip. And the question was, are we? That's right. And the reason why we asked that question, the reason why you knew the answer is because as a kid, you probably asked it. If you're a parent, you've heard the question. It drives you nuts. But the reason why is because we're so focused on the destination. In this series, we're talking about a journey to the cross. You know where we end up. We're going through the book of Mark. We're going to end up at the cross, ultimately at the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But we get so focused on the destination, my fear is that we miss the process. And we miss what happens on the journey. And what we're doing in this series is we're going on a journey with Jesus, his journey to the cross. Matthew, or or Mark chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 is all one week in the life of Jesus. In fact, some scholars say that the first 10 chapters of Mark are an introduction to what's then the passion narrative in the New Testament, the passion narrative being the last week of the life of Jesus Christ. And what we see is that Jesus goes on this journey, and my hope for us as a church is that we'll go on the journey with Jesus, and I hope that when we get to the cross, it's a powerful Sunday. And when we talk about the resurrection, Lord willing, lives will be changed. But my hope is that all of us that go on this journey together will be changed through the process. We'll be overwhelmed by Jesus' love for us, and then we'll grow in our depth of love for Jesus. And what we saw when we started this, this series a couple weeks ago is that Jesus came in, and it was what's called the triumphal entry oftentimes, but it was less than triumphal if you really think about it. A Roman triumphal entry, you'd come in on a war horse. Jesus came in on a young colt on a donkey. If you're a Roman, you're coming back in on a triumphal entry, it's because you just had triumph. You just had victory in a battle. And so you brought in captives from whatever town that you had conquered, whatever place that you had overcome. But Jesus comes in and there's a bunch of people that are voluntarily coming with him and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And he came to set those captives free. Some of those very same people that in a few days will chant, crucify him. One of those guys that will betray him with a kiss and ultimately take his own life. But we saw that Jesus' journey was a journey to lasting joy. But Jesus' journey isn't just a journey to lasting joy. As we go on this journey with Jesus, we're going to see today that Jesus' journey is also a journey to authentic relationship with God. And that's what we're going to talk about in in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12, if you have your Bibles. That Jesus' journey to the cross isn't just a journey to lasting joy like we saw last week when he comes in in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. But it's also a journey to authentic relationship with God. And I'm going to read a verse. Before we even get to verse 12, I'm going to read a verse, verse 11, that reminds us how the triumphal entry ended. And it's an easy verse to forget. It's almost there just in passing to see what what happens. So people are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then when that's done, uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And so he comes in, then he leaves town, which becomes a pattern for him on each day of this last week of his life. 
And so it's Sunday, Palm Sunday, they lay down the palm branches, they lay down the coats, they sing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and then when it's done, Jesus goes on a little recon mission. He goes in, kind of reconnaissance, checks out the temple, but he doesn't do anything. It's late. And so he waits till the next day. And so in our passage, we're on the next day. It's Monday of this week. It says in verse 12, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. <laughs> this can be one of those stories you read it and you're like, what? Why is that even in the Bible? We'll keep reading. We'll keep reading. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the, of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He shuts down their worship. And then he starts to teach them. And we don't have everything he taught them probably, but here's some highlights. It says he taught them, is it not written? He quotes Isaiah here. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. All nations. Let that sink in for a minute. But you've made it a den of robbers. That's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 7. And it says in verse 18, the response, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, those are the guys in charge, heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. Why? For they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. And so there's that pattern again. When the day was over with, Jesus then leaves Jerusalem. He, he goes back out, probably to Bethany. And you can read this, and you're like, well, there's these two encounters. And you can say Jesus got angry, or Jesus was ticked, or whatever you want to say there. It doesn't actually say that. But you do see that there's rebuking and judgment in both situations. The first one is with this tree. He comes to this fig tree. He curses the fig tree. He rebukes and judges the fig tree because it doesn't have fruit. And then you come to this next one, and there's this stuff going on in the temple that he's not pleased with, obviously. He says, my house is supposed to be called a house of prayer, which is the essence of worship, communion with God, the fellowship with God, dependence upon God. But you made it a den of robbers. And so he curses and rebukes again. And you'd be like, well, this seems like there's just these two random stories. Why do these even go together? But what's happening here, I want to point this out to you, and then we're going to read the next two verses. It's a technique that Mark's used before called a, a bracketing technique or sandwich technique, a literary technique where he introduces a topic, and then he puts something else in the middle, and then he comes back to the topic again. So like a sandwich, piece of bread, got the middle content, then you got another piece of bread. Gluten-free, whatever you want it to be. Those of you who are imagining the sandwich. Or bracket. Bra starts the bracket, content, another bracket. What happens is these two events actually interpret one another. And so let me read to you the next couple verses, verses 20 and 21, just to show you it comes back to it. In the morning, so now it's Tuesday, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree, the same fig tree we talked about in verses 12 through 14. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots, completely destroyed. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. What you said has happened. And it happened miraculously fast. What's happening here is we've got one truth that's illustrated by two different encounters. The rebuking and the judgment there. What we're seeing is that Jesus judges and rebukes, curses, fruitlessness. And the point, and the first point of our message today is this, that Jesus' journey to the cross, as we see in day two and day three of his journey here, Jesus' journey to the cross is a journey to end empty religion. Jesus' journey to the cross is a journey to end empty religion. And he starts with this tree which is really like a divine object lesson. It says, if you go in your Bibles, back up to verse 12, it says the next day that Jesus was leaving Bethany, and so he's coming into, this into Jerusalem again. He's coming, he sees, he's hungry, and he sees this tree. Now first pause and just acknowledge the fact that Jesus got hungry. 
A lot of times we talk about Jesus. He's the redeemer of our souls. He knows he's walking on water, turning water to wine like we sang in the song. Cures blind people. But let's not forget he's also human. He experienced hunger. We know at times he got tired. He falls asleep in the boat. And we read in the book of Hebrews that he was tempted every way that you've ever been tempted, with every temptation you've experienced. Jesus was tempted in all ways just as we're tempted. And here we get a picture of his humanity. He woke up apparently that morning, didn't have breakfast. It was a long day the day before. They're singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, laying down palm branches. From all outward appearances, it seems like these people get it, but Jesus knows in a few days they're going to chant, crucify him, crucify him. He's headed back into the temple. He's just done his reconnaissance mission in verse 11. He knows where he's headed. He knows where he's taking these guys. And in, the, in verses 12 through 14, there's no crowd. It's just Jesus and his 12 disciples. He's hungry. He probably knows they're hungry. And he sees this tree off in the distance, and it's got leaves on it. Leaves promise fruit. It's a sign of life. But Mark tells us in the passage, but it, but it wasn't the season for figs. And so you might think to yourself, why would Jesus even get mad? There aren't even supposed to be figs here. But Middle Eastern fig trees actually had two kinds of fruit on them. One, there would be uh, these, the, the figs when they actually came in season, which would be a, about a month from the time that Jesus does this. But also there were these little nodules that were edible that would come on and there would be abundant. There'd be lots of them on a tree. And so if the tree had leaves on it, it'd be a sign that there'd be these nodules there and there weren't nodules there. They, they, weren't, they weren't there. And so Jesus comes up to this tree that has the signs of life, signs of fruit. It has leaves, but no fruit. And then it says that he curses the tree. Now, some people have a real hard time with this story, even being in the Bible. Like, it's not worthy of Jesus' character. It can't be accurate because it makes him look bad. It looks like he's just throwing a tantrum. Like, he, you know, his blood sugar was just low, and there was no fruit there. It's like, eat a Snickers, Jesus. <laughs> and some people, and a lot of people quote the same guy when they talk about this in, in different commentaries. And so I want to just read you uh, exactly the way he says it. T.W. Manson's the commentator. He says, it's a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. I don't talk like that, so I kind of got to interpret that in my own head. So Jesus had power to do something here. He wasted his power because he got ticked. And then Manson goes on to say what Jesus should have done. <laughs> but don't we do that? If you would just, Jesus, why didn't, I, have a, I could see a better way than what you're doing here. Why don't you? And he says, he says what, he, what he could have done here, instead of wasting his power cursing this tree, is he could have out of season, made this fig tree bear figs. And it's true, he could have done that. He did turn a little boy's lunch into the feeding of 5,000. He can walk on water. He, he paid taxes out of a fish's mouth, okay? So <laughs> he can do any of that stuff. But that's not what he's doing here. And our tendency is, you know, you see that he's hungry, we see that he gets tired, we know that he's tempted in every way, and we forget that he was without sin. This is not some irrational tantrum that he's showing. But oftentimes we read it and we can identify with that because so many of us have experienced Have you ever gotten a situation before where you're like mad? You're mad at like a door. You're mad at like, you know, the car won't start. It's just an inanimate object and you're like angry at it. And so we identify with that idea. I was telling one of our staff members, uh, Carrie Evans, she's our communications director. and She was asking me, we got a new puppy and uh, she loves puppies. And so she was asking, how's it going with the, the new puppy? And, and for those of you who don't know, we got four kids and we already had a dog. We decided to buy another dog. We are crazy is essentially what that means. And I was coming home the other night, my wife wasn't with me, and the four kids come in the house, which is just usually chaos anyways, and I'm letting the dogs out, and as I'm letting out the, the new puppy, I take him out the front yard, he goes, he goes to the potty, and then I bring him back inside the house, and then some kids had some drama. I don't know what it was still, I actually don't care, to be honest with you. Somebody was squeezing somebody, I heard words about someone bit someone, a dog wasn't involved, it was like two humans, and someone got bit. So they're screaming and crying, and then I go to take the other dog out the back door, 
And our poppy, who I just took outside, has left me a little care package <laughs> right on the floor. And I told my wife, I said, when I'm looking at puppies online to try and figure out what kind of puppy we want and all that kind of stuff, no one shows this little care package sitting in the middle of your floor. Like they show these cute little faces. It was poop, for those of you who don't get what's happening here. And so, you know, I got the care package sitting here. got kids screaming and crying. I'm holding the other dogs. I'm about to take them out the back door. I go to unlock the back door. The deadbolt falls off in my hand. <laughs> Which the deadbolt lock falls off regularly. But I'm probably wrong about this, but it seems like it only falls off in stressful moments. And so at that moment, I'm ready to cur- I'm ready to like take it and throw it through the window at, at that second. But I just sarcastically say, of course, of course it falls off right now. Poop in the middle of the floor. Kids are screaming over here. Got the dog in my arms. And so I let the dogs out, and I come in. I, I want to curse the back door, but I'm not Jesus. That's not what's happening here with Jesus. We can read this story, and quickly, just a, a glance as a surface reading of the story, it appears that that's what happened. Like, Jesus is hungry. His buddies are hungry. This tree looks like it's supposed to have food, and it doesn't have any food. So when he gets there, he's mad. It doesn't say that Jesus was mad, actually. It does say that he curses the tree. But what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us a living parable. He's giving them an object lesson. I've done it before with you here at the church. Some of you may remember one time I was teaching on the power of our words. I dropped a weight through a glass table. That's an object lesson. I'm showing you you can't reverse it. You can't put it all back together. Uh, At Christmas time, I knocked down a wall that we had built up here on stage and showed how God, sometimes he, he, he takes everything out of order in our lives so that when we put it back, we surrender to him. You see, Jeremiah is famous for doing this in the, in the Old Testament. He's a, a naked prophet. You can go ahead and read Jeremiah and figure out what I'm talking about with that. He gives these object lessons to demonstrate the truth that God wants to show to the people. And what Jesus is doing here is he's taking this fig tree that has leaves and no fruit, and he's showing that he's not pleased when something has an appearance that's not true of the substance, which is something we see all the time in our culture. How many of you have gotten to know somebody, maybe your parents or maybe it's your family, where their marriage looks great and everyone thinks they have a great marriage, but when you get to know them... You know, they don't even sleep in the same bed. And maybe it's because people have bad backs or uh, because one likes a different type of mattress than the other one likes them. Or maybe it's an excuse. And the only thing really holding their marriage together is their kids or outward appearance. Looks one way, but on the end, what's really happening? Or, or have you ever met people before? You're like, man, they must be really rich. They drive a Mercedes, got this big house. And then you get to know them and you're like, oh, wow, they've got financial stress coming from every direction. Debt, crazy, just looks one way, but it's something different. I remember... Um, when I did real estate in seminary, we were living in Dallas, Texas, and did uh, real estate to pay my way through school. And one of the, I remember one of the houses, we were selling one of the houses that we owned, it was our personal house, and this guy was going to buy it, he was an investor, and I was working with another realtor in our church, talking about this transaction, and trusted this guy, and he said, here's the problem, Scott, that transaction is not going to happen. I said, why? He said, big hat, no cattle. I'm from Michigan. <laughs> I don't know anything about ranching. I honestly, in my naivety, said to the realtor at that point, does this guy wear a cowboy hat? Like, what are you talking about? Big hat, no cattle. And the guy was an investor, so it seemed like an easy deal, like cash deal, and it'll just happen, it'll happen a lot quicker than a regular deal. And, and so I was excited about it, and he goes, no, 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 he, he drives a nice car. He talks the talk. He knows all the language. He doesn't have the money. He's big hat, no cattle. There's no substance. It looks like a rancher. looks like a cowboy. No horses. No cattle. Big hat, no cattle. That's this tree. Leaves. No fruit. And so it covers the appearance of the fact that there is no fruit. And so Jesus comes to this tree knowing that it has leaves and no fruit, 
to give a lesson just to his 12 closest guys about what's about to happen in the temple. These two circumstances interpret one another. And that's why we know this isn't just Jesus losing his temper in the situation. Because we see the technique that, that Mark's using here. When you understand that he's using the bracketing or the sandwich technique to show these two things that teach one truth, what you end up realizing is, oh, it's clear. Jesus had a plan here with this. He's teaching his disciples. And what he's teaching them is, he doesn't like when you have the outward appearance. The inward is lacking. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, you see Jesus reserves some of his harshest words for people that lack fruit. He talks about false teachers. And when he talks about false teachers in, in Matthew chapter 7, he says this, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. It's by your fruit they will know. He goes on, he confronts hypocrisy, and oftentimes we just think of hypocrisy like it's saying one thing and doing something else. How many hypocrites don't even realize they're hypocrites? Because they're keeping up the outward appearance. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 23? You're like whitewashed tombs. You look clean on the outside. He's referencing a gravesite, but inside it's dead men's bones. You clean the outside of the cup. Outside of the cup looks great. Inside it's filthy. So you don't. Re- you just have the outward appearance. In Mark, he said about he quotes Isaiah and he says he praised me with their lips, with their hearts. Their hearts are far from me. What Jesus is going after is the heart, and what he sees with this tree is a picture, the same kind of picture, like the whitewashed tombs, like the cups that are clean on the outside. It's got leaves, no fruit. You think about that and think about where do we see leaves elsewhere in the Bible? How about the third page after Adam and Eve sin and they take leaves to cover up their shame? And I was thinking about that this week and it made me think about what are the leaves that we, what are the things we use to cover up the fact that we are experiencing empty religion? Our sin of empty, of putting on the front that things are okay when we know inside we are empty. I think about Southern Christianity, especially here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And how many people in this church and in churches around the triangle today, they have these things that they put on a front where it looks like that they and God are doing really well, but in reality, they know, they know what's going on. And what are the leaves? There's the leaf of activity. And the leaf of activity is, you know, you serve some, you go to Bible study fellowship and you're serving in your church and serving in the community and you're just doing a lot of stuff that looks like good Christian stuff. And so no one really asks you, no one bothers you about it. Or there's the leaf of attendance. As long as I show up in my small group, as long as I show up at church, as long as I'm at the right things and the right people see me, then I'm good. No one's going to ask. There's the leaf of lingo. Do you know the lingo? Do you know the Christian subculture lingo? Have you been saved, brother? Are you lifting anyone up? Really, you're that strong. You can lift people up? Like, think about some of the stuff we say. If you weren't part of our subculture, how weird. I echo that. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about? Bow, bow, bow. No one talks like that. But if you know the lingo, people will leave you alone. It's the leaf of lingo. The leaf of activity. The leaf of attendance. And what are we doing? We're covering up the emptiness, oftentimes, that there's actually no fruit. Jesus curses the leaf, no fruit. And curses the tree. What he's saying is, I judge empty religion. He came to end empty religion. So you've got to ask yourself, well, what's the fruit? And you go through the New Testament and start seeing the fruit that we talk, that are ta- that's talked about. John the Baptist talked to these very people, these very people. Keep, keep faithful in the bearing of fruit of repentance. Not just did you repent when you made a profession of faith, but do you realize the weight of your sin regularly? How it breaks your fellowship with God? Who you're sinning against? Do you repent regularly? The fruit of repentance. So the fruit of impacted lives. And you see Paul talking about the Thessalonians, you are my joy, you are my crown, you're the fruit, you're the, you're what's the, you're what the crowns I'm going to be able to hand back to Jesus when I get to eternity, impacted lives, the people that he's impacted. 
So who have you impacted? I mean, you go to a church, we talk about at our church oftentimes, people trusting Christ, lives being changed. And sometimes you can be guilty of just thinking, well, because I go to this, I'm part of that church and it happens at that church, so therefore it happens, but does it happen with you? Do you have a one? We talk about as a church, everybody having somebody they're praying that comes to Christ. Do you share Christ with people? With not just one person you think of, but maybe other people as opportunity comes? But not just seeing people trust Jesus as their Savior, but let me ask you this, do believers that already know Jesus, do they grow to love Jesus more as a result of being around you? That's the fruit of impacted lives. Or is it the fruit of the Spirit that's talked about in Galatians chapter 5? But the fruit of the Spirit, it talks about what it looks like when you live your life in the flesh. And then the contrast is, but the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, that when you're adopted into God's family, because none of us are just born a Christian, when you get adopted into God's family, you get brought in and you become a child, a son and daughter of the King. The Spirit of God comes to live in you. That's Ephesians chapter 1. And in Galatians chapter 5, it says, in the fruit of that Spirit, the evidence, what you see is love and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control. Do you have that? Not just, I mean, everybody's sentimental love, but do you love the outcast? Do you love the people like Jesus loves people? Do you love sinners? Do you love the people that would be your enemies? Do you pray for your enemies? Do you have a supernatural, because we're talking about a supernatural love here. Like more love than, than a Hindu can experience. Because you've got the living God inside of you giving you the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of God. There's the power at work within you to do immeasurably more than God could ask or that we could ask or imagine that God wants to do in you. That power, do you have that kind of love? Do you love more now than you did six months ago? Are you more patient now than you were six years ago? Do you have more peace today than you had whenever? That's evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Do you have fruit so Jesus gives this lesson to his disciples. He's talking about fruit. And the real question for them as they see this is, will I bear fruit? And at this point, we don't know. We don't know. At that moment. Now, we know because we get to look back. We know one of them won't. He'll betray Jesus. But he appears to be, he's got a lot of leaves. And we know that some of them are going to be the very ones. They're going to have impacted lives. They're gonna, we're going to see repentance in the life of Peter. We're going to see the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to see him be a different man in the book of Acts than he is when he writes First Peter. He's transforming. He's growing in fruit. But he doesn't know at this point. So the question's there for them. And then they go into the temple. And you see what happens in the temple. It really interprets what it just, it makes it clear what happens with the fig tree. In verse 15, you go there, it says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area. The temple area that he enters is most likely the court of the Gentiles. That's where everybody could go because there was a spot where everyone could go. But if you weren't a Jew, you couldn't go to a certain spot. There was a restriction, a temporary ban on the Gentiles going to a certain spot. And what Jesus does is he sees this in the midst of the chaos that's happening there. And you've got to get a picture for what the, the temple would be like at this time. This is the Passover. And so there'd be maybe two, some people estimate 2.7 million people in Jerusalem at this time. That's triple, it might be 10 times the population that are there. Josephus tells us one year, they sacrificed 255,000 lambs in one year, one Passover week. Think about all that blood. Think about the smell. What would it be like to be, come walking into this temple? And what does Jesus see? Some commentators say it was like a circus. Tim Keller, he says, imagine uh, the stock exchange floor. And if you've ever seen that before, you buy and sell and buy this and sell this, buy this and sell this. And he said, and then add livestock. That's essentially what you have going on here. Jesus comes into it and says he turns over the tables. Have you ever seen a table flipped over? Like we kind of read it and it's like, hey, he knocked over this guy's chair, but it's a violent act. Like think. Boom, he's got their attention. If anybody was dozing off during the teaching time, 
Jesus got them now. And he's flipping over not just one table, tables. He's flipping over tables. He's going, going through this place. He's flipping over the tables, knocking over the chairs. And then it says he starts to teach. And we don't probably have everything he teaches. He says this, he's saying this isn't how it's supposed to be. My house is called a house of prayer. The essence of worship. Communion. Dependence upon God. What is prayer? It's, a, it's an acknowledgement. You don't have this thing all figured out. You're coming to the one who has the answers. So you let him do some of the talking. It's a conversation that goes back and forth with God. It's supposed to be be characterized by that. When when people come for the first time to my house, they should be like, oh, there's a connection with God here. And that's not what they were seeing. He says, instead, you made it a den of robbers. And so what some of you have probably heard taught from this passage before is that Jesus was upset because the money changers were charging such high rates for exchange. That's not what this passage teaches. In fact, what's in this passage actually is contrary to that teaching. That's wrong. What's a den of robbers? A den of robbers is not where you go and steal. In fact, what they were doing with the money changing and the providing the animals was a service to the people. Can you imagine if you were coming for the Passover and it's a big deal, it's one time a year and you've got your lamb and you travel from a far distance and you get there and they're like, no, this one's not qualified. I pulled this stupid lamb all the way through. It's trying to go off in a little distance. I had to chase it down this cliff and I get here and it doesn't even count. All these are pre-qualified lambs right over here you can buy. And maybe they were at a, an inflated price. We don't know. It doesn't say. But if Jesus were kicking out people because of that, why would he kick out the buyers? Go back to the passage. It says there, you read it right in verse 15. He goes into the temple area. He began to drive out those who were buying and selling. Both buyers and sellers are getting kicked out. He's shutting down the worship altogether. Can you imagine if Jesus came in here today, and I'm going to flip over a table here, but we're going to do communion after the service. He flips over our communion tables. Like, stop worshiping me because your worship is a mockery. You praise me with your lips. Your hearts are far from me. He says that they've made it a den of robbers. What's a den of robbers? It's not where you steal stuff. It's where robbers go to feel safe. That's where they hang out. There's a false sense of security in the temple, he's telling them, because your religious practices, because you come and you do the right sacrifices at the right time, you ignore the fact of the way that you live the rest of the time. You've got leaves and no fruit, is what he's telling them. You've got the appearance of religion, but it's empty religion. And if you read, if you want, you want some amazing passage of scripture to read, read the passage he's quoting from in Jeremiah. You want us to apply something to our time with the refugee, banning refugees? Really, as a Christian, we're banning refugees? Because Jeremiah chapter 11, he's talking about all the sin they have. He says, the foreigner among you, treat them, treat them like a brother. And then may, if you'll start doing these things, then maybe, if you'll repent, then I'll be your God and you will be my people. But right now, uh-uh. You're making it a den of robbers, he says, Jeremiah 7, 11. And he's saying here, same thing's happening in the temple. And the question for us is, is it happening here? Not just in the American church, but what about this church? What about your life? It's empty religion. It appears good. No one's going to call you on it. No one's going to question you because you got the leaves. But you have the fruit. And so what does it look like for us? And what do we call it? And I was thinking about it this week. And we call it lots of things. We call it uh, carnal Christianity. We'll call it uh, nominal Christianity. We'll call it cultural Christianity. We'll call it legalistic Christianity. Which, by the way, I just wanted to share with you this week. I was thinking about it. I was like, I think a lot of people, when you hear legalism, you just think of people who keep strict rules. And everyone knows we are not to keep those rules. No. Legalism is anybody that's living their spiritual life like they need to earn God's love. Like you just do the right things, then he'll bless you. That's legalism, by the way. And you can package it however you want, but that's the underlying current. 
of legalism. Legalistic Christianity, cultural Christianity, uh, any kind of, if you start adding a word to Christianity, it's not Christianity. It's the same with the gospel. Poverty gospel, prosperity gospel, liberation gospel, it's not the gospel anymore. And so nominal Christianity is not Christianity. Legalistic Christianity is not Christianity. Cultural Christianity is not Christianity. But that's much of what gets demonstrated as Christianity in Raleigh, North Carolina. So what about for you? And I know there are people in our church that experience that. And I, I wish I just knew what to say to like click, make it click so you could have a real relationship with Jesus. And many of you know that our church uh, recently lost a, a great godly man, Andy Moore. I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. Um, right after he had passed away with an unexpected accident, Andy was involved with our student ministry and was in my small group, had led small groups at our church before. And at first I thought it was ironic that Andy in the last small group we had before uh, Christmas and some of those things uh, had shared his story with me. And I had actually asked him if I could share his story with our church, thinking his story goes right along with what so many people are experiencing. I, I just wanted to share it. And maybe it would click for someone else. And he said, yes. And then we canceled the service that week. And then, obviously, unknowing to me, I was going to be doing his funeral. And then I saw it as God's providence. that he would have me thinking about Andy's story so much right before he died. And if you, weren't at the, if you were at the funeral, you know some of the things he shared with me, but if you weren't at the funeral, I'll just, I'll just tell you, the last week that we had a small group, we were talking, and people started sharing their stories of how they went from, a lot of them religion, because a lot of people knew stuff about God, to having a real relationship with Jesus. And some of them came from different backgrounds of different brands of religion. Um, and some of them came from genuine Christianity, but it wasn't real for them. And, and it was, if you've ever been in a small group at Southbridge, you know that we talk about the sermons and, and we're talking about passages, but sometimes it can go like on, tan, you know, even, in the, even in my group, and I preach the sermon, it's like we start going on these things. And so we weren't having a Sunday where was, or a, a Monday night where it was going to be, uh, let's all tell our stories, but people did. They started telling their stories, and when it was Andy's turn, he said that he really grew up as a cultural Christian, born into a Christian home, parents loved Jesus. He said, though, if I was born into a Muslim home, I always thought I'd be Muslim. If I was born into a Hindu home, I thought I'd be Hindu, but I was born into the right one, so it worked out for me. And when I was getting ready to do his funeral, I asked his mom what it was like as a little boy for him. And uh, he, his mom said, when Andy was seven years old, we had the preacher come over one, one time. And the preacher asked him, Andy, when you stand before Jesus, and Jesus asked you if you have any questions, what are you going to say? And Andy said, well, I'm not going to have any questions by that point. I'm going to know everything. And if you knew him, you knew that he knew his Bible well. The problem was he didn't know Jesus. You can have leaves and no fruit. He described himself as cultural Christian, as a nominal Christian. But when he got to college, he was a leader. Other people looked to him as a leader. But it wasn't until after that that it clicked, and he started sharing with us how he came into a passionate relationship with Jesus, a real relationship with Jesus. Not just going through the motion, not just taking communion, not just showing up at church, not just going to Bible study, not just teaching Bible studies, but really knowing Jesus. And so then afterwards, I asked him, I said, can I share that with our church? And he said, yeah, you can share with the church. And I remember it was a Thursday night before he passed away, uh, my wife was actually over at their house, and they were having a party, and the wives were all downstairs, and Andy was upstairs at his house, and I was upstairs, I was writing the sermon, and I texted him, I said, you know, what is it that made it click for you, Andy? Like, how would you say it? And he didn't come right back. He was probably downstairs making food for all the ladies or hanging out and joking around with them, but then he sent me a text message, and uh, I'm going to share the text with you. His wife said that was okay, and so do the kids. I share this text with you. These are some of the last words I have from my friend. He said, uh, hey man, sorry, I just saw this. The short answer would be the real cost, weight of sin. 
It was for the first time really understanding the way God views our sin instead of the way we view it and belittle it. And then he said, for instance, and those of you who know Andy know that he oftentimes talks in analogies, and so here's going to give an analogy. He says, for instance, a lie told to your child, told to your spouse, told to a police officer or judge, or told before Congress. In each case, it's a lie. But the outcome slash punishment could be far different and more severe as you move up the list. The fact that the lie was wrong doesn't change. It's the level of the person you have offended with the lie. Therefore, in our minds, we can dismiss it as a simple contrite. Everyone has sinned and fallen short. And he's referring to a passage that many of you, if you've been in the church, you've heard so many times, Romans 3.23, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And you're like, oh yeah, we all do. Everyone does it. He's saying that we belittle it that way. But what matters is the importance, glory, perfection of the God we sin against. If even our good works are but filthy rags, imagine how he views our sin. This new perspective is what made it click for me. I discovered that I had belittled sin because I was a good kid, went to church every Sunday, and was all good in that department. I was living my life like I didn't even need a Savior. I guess you could call it cheap grace. I was living as if under grace, but never confronted with the weight of what bought me that grace. Sorry for the long text. Hopefully it's helpful. Of course you can use it. And then after we exchanged a couple more texts. P.S. I'm still a wretched sinner, but I've been bought by a mighty God at an unfathomable cost. Amen. Amen. But what about you? Do you realize the weight of your sin? Because the tendency is to go, well, it's not as bad as this, especially if you're in the Bible studies, and especially if you go to church, which all of you obviously do. And especially if you pray, if you read your Bible, but... Are you still empty? Is it just leaves and no fruit? Is it really, the, is it re, real joy, real peace, real patience, real, or is it, a lot of times what we do is this. We say, I've got these things, God's going to do a work in me, and we give a nod to God, but what we really mean by that is we're going to tighten up the laces on our shoes and try really hard, but we know as good Christians we're supposed to give God credit. It's empty religion. And, and I, love, I think about that passage, I've quoted it so many times here in the gospel, but Annie said it, it's Isaiah 64, even our righteousness is like filthy rags, that's our righteousness. Then how does our sin look? Even if it's not youth, it's not that bad, of, I mean, I've got Christian parents, and I grew up in a Christian home, and I've never done some of the things that you've done, Scott, I've never done some of the things that so-and-so's done, or I've never done some of the things that, that my spouse did, I've never done, do you realize the weight of your sin? Because these people are making a mockery of it, and they've got this false security it reminds me of the passage where Jesus says, there's going to be a day where people stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we go to Bible study fellowship in your name? And didn't we attend Southbridge fellowship in your name? And go to Bridge Kids in your name? And I, I didn't know you, though. You're evildoers. Well, that's not evil. But your sin wasn't right with me. Away from me. Empty religion. Jesus' journey to the cross was a journey to end empty religion. But it wasn't just that. There's a couple more verses in this passage that we haven't read yet. And I intentionally didn't read them yet. Some people think they don't belong here. In fact, if you read Bible commentaries, some folks will say that Mark just didn't know where to put them, and so he kind of crammed them together at this situation. I don't think that's true. We see similar sayings in Matthew and in Luke in different places. But I believe that, that Mark put them here intentionally because it's an exact contrast to what Jesus has been condemning in verses 12 through, through 20, 21. In verse 22, he, he starts to show us that Jesus' journey to the cross wasn't just a journey to end empty religion. It was a journey to have authentic relationship with God. It was a journey to have authentic relationship with God. That's our second point. And he gives a command to start it in verse 22. Have faith in God. And that's the way relationship with God starts. 
And then he talks about prayer, and then he talks about forgiveness. Look at it. In verse 22, have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it'll be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, there's prayer, believe that you've received it and it'll be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And so what we have here are these key elements to an authentic, it's not everything there is to be said about an authentic relationship with God, but you've got these key elements, faith and prayer and forgiveness. And it starts with faith, and we know that faith is essential. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. It's not unlikely, it's not, but if I really, but I can be better than the other people. No, you can't clean your act up enough, you can't know enough, you can't do enough. Without faith, dependence, trust upon God alone, and what he did on the cross alone, it's impossible to please God. But how do I get faith then? How can I have faith? Especially what we're going to look at next. He talks about moving mountains and prayer that, that, that's, that's answered prayer. And so how can I muster up enough faith? You've got to understand you don't even do faith. That's not even you. Faith's a gift. And faith isn't the foundation of your relationship with Christ. It's grace. That's the work of God. It's what he did on the cross. You didn't deserve it. You don't earn your way into being adopted. God chose you to be adopted into his family. That's grace. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 is by grace you've been saved And then there's this vessel, this conduit, like a pipeline. How do we connect with God? By faith. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And then look at what the next verse says. He's talking about faith. It's not of yourselves. Verse 9, it's the gift of God. Even faith itself is a gift. It's a gift of God and not your work. So you can't boast about it. It's all God's work in your life. So you can't do it. It's not about being born into the right family. It's not about doing the right stuff. It's not about attendance. It's not about activity. It's not about knowing the lingo. It's not about assimilating into it. God has to do a work in your heart. Examine yourselves and see if you're of the faith. But it's not just faith for faith's sake. It's really important here that the source of faith, verse 22, you're commanded to have faith in God. That shapes everything we read in the rest of this passage. In God. Who is this God? We know lots about this God from the rest of Scripture. And so we can't just take these verses in isolation because some of it really sounds a lot like prosperity gospel, which we know is no gospel at all. He says, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it'll be done for him. I don't know how many times you've ever needed to move a mountain. Probably none. What Jesus is using here is hyperbole. It's a word picture. He's the master teacher. He's already used an object lesson. Then he's lived it out in his life. And now he's giving them a word picture of faith. A mountain is an obstacle. Oftentimes in Jewish culture, thought of as an impossible thing to move. So whatever's impossible in your life, and what is Jesus about to remove so that we can have faith, relationship with God? It's our sin. That's his journey to the cross. It's about removing the greatest obstacle, the greatest mountain. And there are other obstacles, difficulties that happen in life. Cancer diagnosis, struggles in our marriage, financial problem, all those stuff. But God can even use that. We can rejoice in those things and have joy in those things because God can even use those things to deepen an authentic relationship with him. But in God, in that God, and he can move mountains. He removes the greatest mountain, which is the issue of forgiveness, which he talks about later. But next he talks about prayer because what is prayer? It's such a crucial part of authentic relationship with him. But he says it in such a way in this verse it almost sounds like, well, if any prayer that I ask for doesn't get answered, it must be because I don't believe enough. Because we're talking in the faith, the context of faith. He says, he says, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it'll be yours. And so here's where a lot of times you get these prosperity preachers or different folks will take a verse like this. And let me say something. This isn't all the Bible has to say about prayer. 
So you've got to filter the Scripture through the other Scriptures. And what do, you, what, do you, what do you know here? And so other places, Jesus, when he says this statement in Luke and in Matthew, the way he says it, he says, anything you ask in my name will be given to you. Okay, so I've got to add his name like it's a formula to get your wishes granted. No, that's not what he means. Who's the faith in? God. Is God a genie? No. How's he answer prayer? Sometimes he, he heals people's diseases. I've seen that. We've prayed and seen it happen. Is it because I had enough faith? No. Because other times people have died. Does that mean he didn't have enough faith? Sometimes I pray for deliverance from a situation, and God delivers. Sometimes he has you go through the situation. Sometimes he takes people home. So what's happening? We don't have time to go to every verse on prayer. I want to read you one from 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. So this is the confidence we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. How do we know if we're asking according to his will? As we continue to grow in communion, continue to grow in dependence, we continue to study his word, we continue to be changed, our minds are transformed, so we start to know him better and better and better. We know more about his character. It's the one we have faith in. I mean, Jesus himself, the one who says these words, if you believe that you receive it, then you'll have it. Later praise. Not what I want, but what you want. Why is it when Paul asks for his thorn in the flesh to be removed three times and it doesn't happen? Is it because Paul didn't believe enough? It's because God had a different will, a different plan. Here's what we know, though. Anything we ask according to his will, he hears us. What more could you ask for? You've got communion now with the living, almighty God. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know what we ha- that we have what we've asked of him. If we're asking, we want his will. What, it, what we're saying here is that you know, you've got him listening to you. If you're going to him and asking him his will, he, he promises that he's listening. You have him. And you're talking to the God that we have faith in God, not faith in faith. We've got faith in God, not faith in our wish. If I just wished it harder, if I just wanted that mountain to move more, if I just wanted that bill paid or whatever. Your faith in God. You trust that he knows what's best. And as a father, as our father who's adopted us into his family, he actually knows what's best to us. And every parent here knows that oftentimes your kids ask for things that aren't best for them. And our father does know what's best. And he loves us. He cares for us. And then he goes on in this passage and he talks about forgiveness. I think it's interesting. Of all the mountains he could talk about, he talks about forgiveness. But notice this, verse 25. If you hold anything against anyone, anything from the greatest pain in your life to the most petty thing, with anyone, believer or non-believer, forgive. So your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And it almost makes it sound like forgiveness is conditional. But we already know that it's not. We just read Ephesians 2. Even faith is a gift from you, much less forgiveness. It's all a gift. Everything's been given to you. But do you understand? Do you understand what's been given to you? It's like the passage in, in Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus is teaching and Peter's just asked him, how many times do I have to forgive? And he's just told him the answer, but then he tells him a story because oftentimes stories help us understand things. And so he tells this story. He says there's this guy who has this huge debt, so huge he could never repay it. And the master calls him in to pay the debt. And the master's angry with him. He's not going to be able to pay the debt. So he says, sell his wife, sell his kids, sell him. It's never going to get repaid, but that's how we're going to make him pay. And he falls down on his knees and he starts begging, just give me more time. Just, I just need more time. Just give me some time so I can repay the debt. And then the master, in, in a total act of grace, doesn't answer his request. What a good master. Because he could never give him enough time. He'd never repay it. Instead, he forgives it. And lets the guy go. And the guy leaves. And he bumps into another guy who owes him some money. And it's a large amount of money if you study the passage, but in comparison to what he was just forgiven, it's like a few bucks. But he grabs the guy by the collar, shakes him, and has no mercy on him, throws him in jail. When the master finds out about it, my paraphrase of the passage, the master is ticked off. And he calls the guy in. 
And he says, you should have, I had mercy on you. You didn't have mercy on this guy. Now you're going forever. And then Jesus says, in his anger, the master turned him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, but he couldn't. He could never pay it back because of who he sinned against. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. And what he's showing, forgiveness was offered. Forgiveness was there. He knew about the forgiveness. He didn't understand the weight of his own forgiveness. And so he didn't forgive. You want to examine yourself for fruit? Are there people that you can't forgive? There's the fruit of forgiveness. You want to know, to make it real? Anyone of anything. Can you, can you forgive? Because if you can't forgive, then do you understand the weight of your own sin and what you've been forgiven? Because that's the essence of the authentic relationship with Jesus. That's why Jesus journeyed to the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, they knew they were nailing him to a cross, but they didn't understand. Do you? Let's pray. Father, I pray for I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that are here today. I pray that we would all repent of our sin, that we would all understand the weight of our sin, like like my friend Andy said, so crucial in his own, own relationship with you. And I pray for those who we might think are our brothers and sisters. They got leaves and no fruit, nominal Christians, cultural backslidden Christians, whatever kind of Christian they want to call it, but it's not real, it's not genuine, it's not authentic. I pray that right now you would make it click. And if that means overwhelming them with the weight of their sin, as miserable as that is, it's the only way they'll ever experience real joy. I pray you do that. And I pray, God, for, for those who, who know they're not followers of yours. Maybe faking it, maybe they're not. You'd show them your love. You'd have them sense your presence. The things that we sing about, the things that we're talking about, that you'd make it real in their hearts. And I pray for believers here too, just, just that might be going through a, a difficult season or a dry season in their spiritual journey, God, that you'd keep calling them to you, keep reminding them you're the Father, and, and God, that you'd just let them sense your presence, even in these moments as we share communion together in a moment. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.